Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the latest installment of Dune Pod, your one-stop shop to get ready for the new Dune movie. This week on the Dune Pod season two finale, can you believe it? I'm joined as always by my co-host Jason. I would like to see Dune as a one-woman show with Tilda Swinton. She plays all of the parts. And by internet pioneer and legend, Tim O'Reilly. Nobody ever says to Van Gogh, paint a starry night again. On this episode, we discuss Tim's 1981 biography, Frank Herbert. We discuss the deeper meanings of Frank's works, coming of age during the human potential movement, and what Frank was like at home. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, as it really helps new listeners find the show. I do want to give a general spoiler warning as we discuss a few of the major outcomes that unfold over the series. We only speak in very broad strokes, and we don't get into any specifics that I think would ruin your enjoyment, but just wanted to warn you. And now, without further ado, Tim O'Reilly. Well, let me just start by asking, what does it take to, you know, run a giant, you know, influential and and well-respected publishing endeavor on the internet? Well, I'll I'll start out by saying, I, I like to think we're well respected, but we're not giant. <laughs> we're about 400 employees, and, and uh, uh, we're not also not a publishing company, uh, pr- particularly anymore. We're really much more of an online learning company. Publishing is about uh, maybe 20% of our revenue okay. at this point. Okay. And most of it's from our online mm. platform. So it's a subscription based platform. And, uh, you know, yes, our books go in there and along with books from a lot of other people, we're really running an online marketplace for, for technology and business content. And, you know, it has publishing, has video, online video, has, uh, you know, live online trainings with instructors who actually interact with students uh, online. It has uh, uh, Jupyter Notebooks and, and uh, Catacoda, which is a, a, another type of live coding environment. Uh, certification exams, all kinds of features. Wow, amazing! And 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 all wrapped into I think just one of the m- more iconic brands in technology, one of the more iconic enduring brands in technology. So it's really great that you uh, agreed to join us uh, to talk about Dune tonight. We're so grateful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, it, it's kind of been fun having that uh, you know ancient piece of my history uh, rediscovered, and yeah. Suddenly relevant, you know, at, in the in the broader cultural uh, kind of awareness of 2021, right? Yeah, I mean, rereading a book that I wrote uh, over 40 years ago is kind of interesting. There's parts of it that I really like, and parts of it I go, "Oh, I'd fix that now." <laughs> <laughs> I get that way on the podcast too. Like I listen, I listened to last week's episode today, and I was like, "Oh, should should edited that out. Oh, should have fixed that." Yeah. What do you feel like as as someone who's is obviously known about Dune and studied Dune, written about Dune for such a long time? What do you what have you observed over time in terms of its cultural relevance and like the ebbs and flows that it's gone through in terms of the amount of attention and, and interest that it's garnered? Well, pretty clearly, you know, when I wrote about it, it you know, which was in the late seventies, it was still going really strong. And obviously, it's been in print, uh, I think, ever since. But uh, certainly, you know, from the time it came out in 63 to, you know, late 70s when I wrote about it, I think it was a cultural phenomenon. It wasn't quite at the level of Lord of the Rings, but everybody knew it. It was, you know, it was the science fiction book in some sense that uh, 
was the most respected. Mm. And I think uh, today, you know, I, I think it's still still selling, but it does not have the same uh, level of regard. And some of that, of course, is like anything. It's a little bit like, well, neither do the Beatles, you know. I mean, uh, you know, if you're thinking about pop music, you know, they're not. Yes, they're still popular. Everybody still knows who they are, but uh, nobody's kind of going, oh, yeah, wow. You know, the Beatles, because, hey, <laughs> right you now uh, they were doing their thing about the same time as Frank Herbert was doing Dune. <laughs> right. That's wild to think about, actually. Yeah. That's crazy. All right. Well, I do want to say, Tim O'Reilly, welcome to Dune Pod. Oh, thanks for having me. We, we've been looking forward to this for a long time. You know, when I, in the very first episode of Dune Pod, Jason and I, it was literally the first time we'd ever spoken uh, on, you know, live on a Zoom. Uh, we still have not met face-to-face. -face. Everything has just been uh, via computer. But he was referencing your book in the very first episode as a critical touchstone for his understanding. And, you know, we were like, someday, you know, we'll get Tim on the pod. So really, really excited and, and thankful for you to, to spend time with us tonight. So we'll be jumping into, in just a little bit, we'll be talking about Tim's 1981 biography, Frank Herbert, uh, which is a really, really fantastic book that is available exclusively on Tim's website, um, and we'll have links to that. Actually, we have had links because it's a touchstone for the pod uh, for the last month or so, and we'll keep it there so people can find it uh, week over week. Next week on Dune Pod, there is no Dune Pod. Uh, we are traveling into the desert uh, as Jason goes on paternity leave. Uh, and I just will say, you know, first of all, thank you so much for everyone who has joined us uh, so far this year in Dune Pod. And stay tuned for season three details. Uh, we will be back in early 2021. Jason, anything you want to say about that? I, I just want to thank everyone who uh, listened to the pod this season uh, and 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 gave us gave us reviews and and sent us feedback and sent us an email. It's just been sent us tweets. Um, it's just been great meeting so many people who care about Dune who've enjoyed this pod. And uh, yeah, we'll like, look forward to seeing you in uh, season three when we return. Yes, yes, it's gonna be very good. All right, so briefly, um, every week, Tim, we give an update on the new Dune movie that is coming out in 2021, which was sort of the genesis of this podcast in the first place. So let's get down to Dune news. Would you like to know more? Dune news. I just have two quick items to talk about. So Hans Zimmer has stated that he is done with the Dune score. Oh, great. Um, and- we saw that they had a test screening in Arizona last week, which was very exciting. And just, it was really cool. You know, he was in an interview with GQ. He talked about how he had worked with Denny and he was excited about what they'd done together in 2049 uh, and that he really trusted him. But he also talked about how Joe Walker, the editor, um, who is uh, the editor of Dune, he trusted him because he had a, quote, better musical education than I do. Um, and he talked about a specific scene where Joe sent him a scene where he had taken score from another scene and moved it. Um, and he actually heard it and he was like, it was slightly different. And I absolutely love the idea of giving him that freedom to experiment and it worked. Great. So that's super cool. That is great. I'm excited that he's, uh, he's done with it. That's a good sign. Yeah. That is in the Gom Jabbar uh, scene. Tim, Hans Zimmer. Obviously famous for doing the Batman movies with Christopher Nolan and doing Inception and Tenet and all of those. Any of those? Do you do you watch a lot of films? 
Uh, I'm not a huge uh, film person, although I have watched probably a number of those. Okay. All right. Very good. Tenet is, uh, is, is really good. That comes out in December of this year. Warner Brothers finally getting around to a digital release. So, so that's going to be very exciting. Oh, wow. I missed that news. I'm, that's great. Mm-hmm. It's coming. All right. One more piece of Dune news. Very briefly, Zendaya was on the cover of Elle magazine uh, and notably was wearing Nike Dunk Highs. Not Air Jordan ones, as I mistakenly thought, but learned from my sneaker channel in Slack. Um, but it was a great interview. Actually, the interview was conducted by Timothy, the star of the new Dune movie. And it was just great to hear the two of them talking about, you know, what it, what it's like, uh, what they're going through, and, and the need to really lift people up. And I just want to read one quote from Zendaya. Um, he asked, what gives her hope? And she says, well, my intention there was really just to be honest because it feels like a very hopeless time, specifically in this country. I know a lot of my peers feel enraged and exhausted and tired of living and growing up in a system that feels like it wasn't built for us. Mm. At this moment in time, it is hard to find joy and beauty in things, and I really think that is important. Right now, we as black people need to embrace joy and not let it be taken away from us. That's great. Awesome. That's great. Good quote from Zendaya. Yeah. So she is also starting production soon on Euphoria season two. So we are quite excited about that. Oh, that's amazing. Great. Yeah. Good news. Um, All right. So there is one final piece of Dune news for season two, and that is the exclusive Dune Pod original holiday artwork, which Jason will now tell you about. Yes, we have commissioned uh, a holiday card for all of our Dune Pod listeners uh, to receive this holiday season. Uh, with exclusive artwork made by uh, professional illustrator Eugene Smith. You can see his work at uh, eugenesmithillustration.com. Amazing. Amazing artwork. Uh, And uh, in show notes will be a link to the form uh, you can fill out uh, with your address, uh, and we will send you a card. Uh, It's our way of both wishing you a festive season uh, and thanking you for being uh, such great fans. Uh, Yeah, and it's... It's pretty great. We'll, I think we'll probably preview the art on the web uh, in a tweet at some point uh, as well. It's going to be very exciting. And Tim, you'll be thrilled to know all guests automatically qualify for the artwork. <laughs> yes, all guests qualify. Yeah, you get a free card. Although the cards are free. The cards are free for everyone, but you get one also. <laughs> I'm excited for this conversation with Tim. Great. Let's get let's get into it. So, Tim, can you just start by telling us how you got involved um, with Dune? How you got involved with Frank? Like, where where did you start that process? Well, uh, I think it it began when I was. Uh, I'm trying to think how old I was. Maybe 13 when I read Dune. So I would have mm. been maybe that would have been maybe uh, uh, 1967. So it had been out for a few years. I remember my father drove me, I'd exhausted all of the books at the local library, and my father drove me to a library that was a little further away. Uh, And I picked up Dune, just, you know, browsing through the shelves of the science fiction section in the library. Where was this? Uh, This was in San Francisco. It was, you know, normally we went to the Parkside branch, but he drove me to the Merced, Lake Merced branch. Mm. Uh, And uh, on the way back, I've always remembered... uh, you know, he looked at my pile of books. You could take out eight books, and one of them was this big, fat volume. And he looked over <laughs> and he said, it's sinful that so large a book should be devoted to science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. Later, when I wrote the book about Dune, I actually toyed with the idea of dedicating it to him with, with, uh, with that story, but I thought it would be cruel. <laughs> nice. Were you a big reader of science fiction at that time? Oh, yeah. I, I read practically nothing else from the time I was in second grade. Mm. What else was in your kind of favorite list? Oh, I, I, I loved Andre Norton. Oh. Uh, you know, when, I was, when, I, when I was younger, in particular, I, I loved uh, like The Stars Are Ours. Mm. Oh, yeah. A fabulous book, uh, The Time Traders. Uh, those were probably two of my, my very favorite uh, books. Did you get a love of reading from your parents? Oh, yeah. Both of them, you know, read all the time. Uh, my mother's uh, in her uh, mid-90s still reading you wow. know, uh, constantly. What did your parents do? Uh, my father was a neurologist, and my mother raised uh, seven children. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Just plenty. And you were, you were, you, you were born in, in County Cork, right? Uh, well, realistically, you know, it's funny because I've discovered that in Ireland— you know, where you, the hospital you came from, like people always go, oh, you're from Cork. And I go, no, I'm from Killarney. Uh, okay. Just County Kerry. Uh, but uh, Cork was just happened to be the closest hospital and I was premature. I see. So the Cork people sometimes try to claim me based on the fact that I say that. But if I were truly Irish, I would say I'm from Kerry. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah. I gotcha. Well, they're both lovely. Is that where Zardoz was filmed? No, Zardoz was the East Coast. Oh, okay. Zardoz was yeah. uh, was Wexford. Okay, okay. But but Carrie also uh, features very nicely in the that last uh, was it the Force Awakens? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That, that's, I've I've been out to the Skelligs, those islands. The Skelligs, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I have uh, pictures of myself uh, having my Jedi apprenticeship there. Amazing! Yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Long long before Luke got there. <laughs> that's right. How do you get out there? Uh, you get on a fishing boat, <laughs> and it's it's about an hour in massive swells. Wow! Uh, it's amazing to think that the monks used to go out there in little, uh, you know, uh, skin coracles. They spent the summer there, and uh, and then they went back to the mainland for the winter. Mm. I, I, I've been there three times, actually. And well, actually, I I set out to go three times. The third time uh, we turned around because some one of the passengers was so terrified and seasick and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> she persuaded the, the boat captain to turn around. I opted for just the helicopter over the Skelligs option because the, the boat ride seems so so chancy. Um, uh, but then you don't get to walk on it. it it's a pretty amazing place. Yeah. That's great. There is, there is a story we should be sure to talk about, uh, about Frank Herbert and George Lucas, though. Please tell me that story. Yeah, tell us the story now. I want to know that story <laughs> right now. Okay. I live in San Anselmo, so I have a special affinity for, for George and, and all things Star Wars ILM related. Yeah, so um, it, this was not when I was writing the first book. It was when I was working on the second book, which is called The Maker of Dune, which is a collection of Frank's essays and, and my interviews with him. Mm. And I had, got, I had gone up there to interview him and uh, so this was, uh, and he was telling me that he was thinking of of uh, suing George Lucas because of all the, you know, and he'd had this legal analysis done of all the points of similarity between Star Wars and Dune. You know, things like, you know, there's a big, you know, uh, looks like a worm, uh, some kind of skeleton in the sand, which could be a, like a giant worm. Is the, you know, anyway, there were various things through this, through the, through the series that were reminiscent of, of Dune. I thought it was pretty thin. 
but mainly, this is you know me, you know my long before I was involved with open source software, but I had this instinctive, you know, reaction. I said, Frank, that's how you know how, how literature works. Everybody, everything you know, steals from each other. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that's so interesting. Why would you want to try to put a stop to that? And uh, we we talked about it over the you know, his kitchen table for a half an hour, and he ended up not doing it. So was this in Santa Rosa? No, no, he lived in uh, uh, up in uh, Bellingham, Washington. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I went and stayed with him at his house there for the you know on on that uh, when I was working on that book just for three or four days and did a bunch of interviews. What was that like? It was it was really interesting. It was. Yeah, it was it was a little bit interesting in the sense that you know there was all this uh, you know this spin about it. it was his eco you know place and yeah I'm sure it was cool he had this swimming pool inside the greenhouse right and uh, you know I loved swimming there and hanging out and but it it didn't it 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 it, it was a little bit of that a little bit of a taste of the you know the spin machine. Hmm. And it was also a taste of the spin machine because when I was working on the first book, uh, the one that you guys referred to, I I talked uh, with Frank only when he was on the road, mm. and he was he was always sort of super on, you know, and he just like would speak in sermons, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and uh, so I I'd gotten a couple of interviews with him, and and they were fantastic, and you know there, you know a lot of interviews that you know I later reproduced, you know the ones by Willie McNelly, and yeah, and uh, there were a couple of other people. I actually the very first interview I did, I immediately followed someone else, but I had arrived an hour early, and so I got to listen in on the first interview, and uh, so I was actually present for that. And so then when I was going to do the second book, I went, wow, I can get more great material just by going and talking with Frank and he'll just kind of preach, preach. He'll be preaching. And instead, when he was at home, he was just much more thoughtful and open. And they were all the interviews that I wish I had been able to get when I was doing the first book book because it was like the deep background and so on. But that that he uh, and letting his hair down. And it was, a you know, he was a showman, I guess would be my point. He, he, he was a showman and a storyteller, and it really comes across in a lot of those public interviews. From when he was on the road, he was creating a, a myth of his own in some ways, you know, a, a very small version of, of the kind of thing that Paul d- does in Dune and the Bene Gesserit do. Mm. How do you think he understood that about himself, given that, like, I think one of the themes that you explore so well in the book is that Herbert seduces the reader into believing the hero myth of Paul, but actually the hero myth is what's being questioned and what's being in, you know interrogated. Uh, and that's you know sort of where he, where he goes in, in Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. Uh, how do you think he understood that about himself in his own myth making? Did he just was it for fun? Like did was he you know doing it you know with that consciousness of like oh like I'm I'm doing the myth building that like you know I know is um, uh, kind of a you know that is always kind of a trap or what what was his what was do you think his own understanding of that? It's uh, a good question, and I, I I don't know that I would have any really deep insights into it. But I would say that he had a sense of, of humility in the in in the in the way that he did not entirely believe his own PR. Hmm. Interesting. You know, he 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 was trying to have an impact, and he was trying to tell a story. 
Uh, but even you, you see it in, in the sort of self, slightly self-deprecating way he writes, you know, for example, when he, he refers to himself as, as having a, a pot of message, a little bit like the mess of pottage that uh, Esau gave to Jacob, right? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. A pot of message. Yeah, so it was just it's a little hard to say. I mean, I, I liked him immensely. He, he was thoughtful, uh, but he also didn't take himself that seriously. Hmm. It seemed like in some ways he was surprised by the success of Dune. Like, you know, he'd written other things and that like Dune became this huge success. And then mm-hmm. it was like he enjoyed he enjoyed that success, um, you know, because like, why wouldn't you? Um, but then, you know, it sort of becomes like the big focus of the thing that you're known for. And you have to kind of figure out how to how to present that to the world. It had to have been so seductive, right? Like to have that kind of runaway success, basically to become the biggest selling science fiction story of all time. Yeah. Like when that happens, that has to lure you in and get you fired up and then kind of drawn into that own gravity. Yeah, but I, I think he had a sense of um, perspective on that. I mean, you know, and he clearly, you know, he clearly went on to, you know, actually, just like uh, you know, somebody else who did some a great myth, bit of myth making, uh, George Lucas, he went on to produce a lot more uh, sequels than he originally meant to. Right, and uh, they're not as good. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it's it's sort of and do you like so when you interviewed him, where where so like the first three books had come out, but he hadn't written God Emperor then. He had not written any of the later books. No. Right, right, right. Interesting. It's interesting to think about Dune as just that trilogy. If that had been it, it would have been. Yeah, if that had been it, it would have been good. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I, I think he, he, you know, that was his original conception, and it didn't go any further. And and the rest of it was just like, hey, this is a, uh, you know, as a money maker, so I should keep going. Right. So I always think about um, some big Lord of the Rings fan and. Um, when Peter Jackson made the first Lord of the Rings movies, um, he cut out Tom Bombadil, one of the most beloved characters there. And he told the fans when they went insane, he said, look, guys, I'm making a movie. I'm not making a book. Um, so some things have to be sacrificed. But by the time you get to The Hobbit, it's a 200-page book that he's turned into a 14-hour, yeah. you know, really boring saga because he's lost his perspective to be able to kind of tell a really, really tight story. Yeah. And I think from my perspective, I think the final three books in the Hexology definitely suffer from some of that. And Lucas went through the same thing and Coppola and all of our heroes. Um, at the end of the day, it's tough to keep producing artwork at that, at that caliber. I guess it's a little bit different, but uh, uh, there's this great uh, bit of patter on Joni Mitchell's Miles of Isles album. Mm. She's a live album, and she says, you know, she said she's talking about why she prefers be, to be, being a painter to being a singer. Mm. And she and she said nobody mm-hmm. ever says to Van Gogh, "Paint a Starry Night Again." <laughs> mm-hmm. That's funny. That's funny. And, and, and I love that. But you know, there's a certain way an author's somewhere in between. You know, where you are asked to paint a starry night again and you can't do it mm-hmm. yeah i want to talk a bit more about this the the central theme of of paul as the seductive hero 
Uh, and I want to just like read this quote um, from your book where he said the Dune, tri- where you said the Dune trilogy was very carefully structured to build up Paul as a hero in the reader's eyes so that his failure when it came would reach across with full intensity as a lesson on the danger of hero worship. Herbert has repeatedly confirmed this intention. This is you quoting Herbert. Dune was set up to imprint on you, the reader, a superhero. I wanted you so totally involved with that superhero and all his really fine qualities. And then I wanted to show what happens in a natural evolutionary process and not betray reason or process. I mean, to me, I think this is what makes Dune such a unique piece. Of, it makes it a unique piece of science fiction is that the, the, the turning of the hero myth is so complete and I think unexpected from just having re- read the first book. But I'm wondering, like, you know, you kind of read, a lot of our guests talk about reading Dune when they're 13 years old. And I think when you, when you read this book at 13 or 14 or 15, like all of us did. 11. Yeah. That you don't, you don't understand that as the theme. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about sort of your experience understanding that central project of Dune. Uh, and, you know, when you kind of came to that interpretation of it, uh, you know, when, you know, how you understood Herbert's approach to it in that way. Well, uh, let me just start out by saying uh, when I first read it, I think like every other, you know, teenage nerd, I was, you know, kind of waiting to be discovered by some crisis. Right. You know, <laughs> that's so great. That's so well said. Uh, you know, that's, you know, I always think of, of, of Heinlein's have spacesuit will travel as a, mm-hmm. as almost like a, like the thing boiled down to its essence, but you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, E doc Smith space opera, you know, scientist figures out, you know, uh, some critical breakthrough and is off, you know, on these vast adventures. And of course, star Wars is very much that, you know, boiled down that myth boiled down to its essence. Uh, you know, this backwoods kid who suddenly is in the middle of, you know, this galactic war. And, and that, that science fiction uh, for a lot of us was about that there's more to us and more, we have more capabilities than we dream of. And Dune was, uh, you know, that, that was present in some of the other classics of, of that era. But Dune was really the, the, perfection of that you know this idea that you had these deep reservoirs of power and skills in you and and obviously it it was sort of leading up to the you know the the human potential movement of the 70s there were all these ideas of that we could be more than we are Mm -hmm. and i thought that that was um yeah, I, you know, that was just very real for me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and there's so many things in there, you know, the voice, for example, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or and not just the ability to see the future. So anyway, all that, I just totally resonated with me. This was, you know, who I wanted to be, the kind of, of you know, it's it's almost like the, you know, Walter Mitty-ish kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. here you're this, you know, this, this uh, you know, bookish kid, uh, and, and that's who you know you are inside. But uh, by the time, I guess I read Dune Messiah probably not long after, but it wasn't that much uh, after that. I was very involved, actually, in the human potential movement. And I got to know this guy, George Simon, who was doing this work on, on the evolution of consciousness. And was this in San Francisco or Berkeley? or This was in, in San Francisco, yeah. Uh, although I, I moved away to the East Coast in 1968. And uh, I didn't come back uh, to, to San Francisco until uh, the summer of 72 hmm. uh, when I, I visited with him again. 
but there was definitely, you know, and I, I, I love doing it. I got him to read it. He, he had this whole theory of the future evolution of consciousness and, and had this idea that there were these stages and they, they, they alternated between individual and group consciousness. You know, like he, he was like, okay, the, he, he had this system that he called uh, the HS system, human sap- homo sapiens. And it was like homo sapiens one was uh, just much more atomic and individual. Homo sapiens two was, was this sort of uh, communal experience. Homo sapiens three was this sort of modern individualism, and he predicted there was going to be this future stage of global consciousness, which I always thought later was very ironic as I became the you know, high priest of global consciousness through Web 2.0, that it was technologically rather than somehow spiritually or you know, psychically uh, going to happen in the way that people thought in the 70s. Those heady days. Yeah, but... Um, but the thing that was sort of interesting is when he read Dune, he thought the next stage was a kind of supermind individualism again. And, and, and he saw Paul, when he read those books, he said, oh, that's the HS5 uh, mental illness. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and I really resonated with that because there was a lot of the work that I did with this guy, George Simon, was a lot about you kind of like trying to relax and kind of tune in to... Uh, it, it was a work that was, it had a lot in common with some of the things that Frank talked about, but it, it was really an inner practice, which uh, I still do, of of just kind of listening to the unknown and letting it speak to you. And the thing that it, it you can get caught in a place that is kind of like Paul, where you're trying to always be in line and in tune being in the right place at the right time and, and, and how are you receptive to being and doing the right thing. And, and it is a kind of craziness. And so Dune Messiah really spoke to me, mm-hmm. you know, from my own experience. And it was really, uh, it was interesting because it was another science fiction book, which is not that highly regarded uh, <laughs> as Dune, but had a really big influence on me. Uh, F.M. Busby's Rissa Kerguelen. Uh, which is this, uh, uh, it was actually also originally published as a trilogy, but then kind of republishes a single long novel. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, w- one of the tropes in there is of uh, time dilation, which is something you guys are quite familiar with from science fiction. The, you know, the idea that as you approach the speed of light, uh, you know, uh, local time proceeds normally, but back on a, a, a relativistic, uh, uh, you know, back, back on Earth, it doesn't, uh, it goes much faster. Yep. Mm-hmm. So in the course of, of this book, they have near faster, uh, near near uh, uh, um, light speed travel, and but that means that the people who are traveling have to make plans and set them loose and meet up with them a hundred years later. Mm. That's funny. Okay, and, and, gotcha. it, and it's actually the, the the title of one of the books that was rolled into the the, the you know the omnibus edition was called The Long View. And I found that and the another aspect of this book, it was a sort of a future that was sort of ruled by big corporations and, and small companies were kind of like the effectively the rebels. And actually, that was sort of shaped me as I was launching my company, you know, when I was 24, you know, right, <laughs> uh, was this idea that, that, that you know, that, that, that a small company could be a force for good. Mm. But also that in, in launching a business, you were kind of doing something where you were... Uh, setting in motion things that you would meet up with in the future. And that in some ways, this was an answer to this kind of craziness that Paul got stuck in of like trying to, you know, be in the moment where you knew everything and were making the right choices, 
as a, instead you're just you're you're doing this thing that Frank talked about talked about a lot about in his essays, where you're you know you're not trying to be in control, where you're just you know you're surfing, and there's that kind of entrepreneurial instinct is like, hey, I'm going to take the risk, I'm going to go meet up with this unknown future, and I'm going to set some things in motion and and see where they take me. That sounds awesome. Another organization you've been involved with is the Long Now Foundation, which kind yep. of similarly seems to have like another uh, a vibe in that uh, in in that direction. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I, I so there, there it operates at so many different levels. As you described, it works perfectly well as this exciting hero story initially, as you're getting up there, and and then you discover all of these deeper, um, more difficult and more challenging uh, paths that come up there. When I when I was reading Children of Dune, and I was struggling with the concept of after Paul's failure in Messiah, and then you have uh, Aaliyah dealing with possession. And it's clearly established that the possessor that is coming there for her really has a, just a completely evil intent. I don't care about anything or anyone, you know? And, and the question is like, how, if you view this as a good and evil, um, ultimately it doesn't work because Paul's jihad was so much more destructive um, than, you know, what the Chome uh, Corporation had been up to for a long time. Uh, but I do love this quote that you have here um, from, uh, from your book that says, furthermore, in Hegel's analysis of tragedy, according to Kaufman, who summarizes and expands his views, the essential is not a tragic hero, but a tragic collision. The conflict is not between good and evil, but between one-sided positions each of which embodies some good. Mm. So it's that concept of Paul ultimately, and then Leto after him, are trying to impose order on top of chaos. And fundamentally, that's the part that doesn't work. That's, that's what Frank, is, in my opinion, is saying. You cannot control. I'm st stuck left with, well, what do we do? Like, Obviously, we should be doing something, and I guess his core assertion is we should be evolving from a conscious perspective and a physical perspective. But it's not that simple because I think first off, there is an interesting way that Frank, uh, you know, he's he's putting layer after layer after layer uh, in, in these books, and that's actually one of the reasons the things that I think Dune had in common with Tolkien is a deep, 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 deep set of backstories. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and, and it always makes me think of this wonderful quote from Ernest Hemingway, who, who once said you, something like, it's not an exact quote, but he said something like, you can put anything in, in uh, you can leave anything out as long as you know what it is. Mm, that's great. And, and, and that idea that you're telling a story that, you know, where the gaps are actually, they're filled in in the background in your head, and but they're not made explicit. And that makes the story deeper because people are thinking about it and they're wondering about it. And and I think Frank had this one quote. He, he even talked about the ending. He wanted people to go skidding out of the story with all kinds of unanswered <laughs> right. questions. Right. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't reduce it down to a simplistic, oh, you know, Paul and Leto were bad. It's more like they were doomed to fail. We are always doomed to fail. And uh, this is not something that, you know, I got, this is something that for me, again, came much later in my life and not uh, that I ever talked about with Frank because I didn't, you know, discover the poem till much later. But there's a, uh, a Robert Bly translation of a poem of Rilke uh, uh, called The Man Watching. And it, it's about Jacob wrestling with the angel. Mm. And, and uh, he says something like, uh, what we fight with is so small. And when we win, it makes us small. 
what we want is to be defeated decisively by successively greater beings. Mm. And, you know, it's like the Old Testament wrestlers wrestling with the angels, not knowing that they, knowing that they could not win, but they still had to do it. And I think, mm-hmm. I, I certainly find that, I don't know, I, as I said, I never talked about that with Frank because I didn't encounter it till much later, but certainly in my own reading of, of those books and what I took away from them, it's very compatible with that idea. You know, Paul and Lito are an example of, you know, the hero doing what the hero must do, which is fight and lose. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's actually a kind of a very, very interesting position because there's so many, it's not that he's saying, oh yeah, they're bad. He's saying that they're, you know, th- they're trying to do something that's impossible, but uh, it's better than the alternative. That's great. I like that. It's interesting because, so you write, um, towards the end of your book, you write, Leto takes the one path of vision that Paul feared and refused. He becomes an absolute tyrant, inhuman and nearly immortal. Leto is willing to commit great evils for an end he can see in the distant future. It is as difficult for him as it was for Paul, but he must bear it. He does not look for justification or escape. Yeah. I don't know to what extent, you know, Frank would take all that seriously. I, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, the, the idea of, of the strongman dictator as a, a, a way of resolving that, you know, I, I, think he would, I think he would certainly say that there are crises that are so big that we're not going to achieve, you know, there may be really bad things that have to happen in order to deal with them. I think anybody with a sense of history will kind of just go, that happens, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Uh, regardless of whether it's good or bad, it happens. Well, that leads to that leads to a question I had too, which is like, what do what do you understand about Frank Herbert's politics? I mean, the things that I've read are like, you know, he viewed like f- characters like JFK as like a big threat because of the mythos um, around him, characters, actual humans like JFK as a, as a big threat because he was like this, you know, the, the Avalon, you know, the, the Camelot myth and like the, the mythos that he built around him sort of was distracting to the public. More dangerous than Nixon. Yeah. So what do, what do you, what do you, what can you say about that? Uh, probably not much. I, I don't know that we ever talked politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly he had background. He had, you know, been, you know, uh, uh, an aide uh, to, was it Slade Gorton mm-hmm. in uh, uh, the senator from Washington, you know, and, and he had been a reporter at the Army McCarthy hearings. And, you know, so he'd been around Washington. Yeah. You know, I, the way I think of Frank, you know, again, there's that that um, phrase that I mentioned earlier, the pot of message that he used to describe himself. He had a lot of different ideas that he would sort of be thrown in. And they were in this big, complicated stew, you know? Right. And part of the the attraction of his work is that they, there were a lot of things in there that just weren't resolved. Right. You know, and you, you think about all the different, you know, narratives and storylines as you read through his work, even his work up to, you know, again, I didn't, by the time I wrote the book, you know, which was in, I, you know, I wrote it, it was published in 81. I think I finished it sometime in 80. You know, I mean, he hadn't written a lot of the, he hadn't written the later Dune books. Um, he was exploring a lot of possible futures. You know, you think about something like Hellstrom's Hive, where the, you know, the, the insect mine uh, triumphs, 
you know, and, mm-hmm. and the, the humans uh, don't win, or or the Santa Rosa barrier, where there's this, uh, you know, very very different kind of of culture, and it kind of works. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I I certainly have walked away, whether it's from that book or from my own study of history of. Just we have a a very narrow triumphalist narrative, you know, in our culture, which is, you know, we are the pinnacle of evolution. Our society is the best society we've ever had. It's going to, you know, just get better and better. And it's just, you know, Frank, I think, was doubtful about that. Mm -hmm. And he saw that there, there were a lot of different ways for people to organize themselves, some of them better than others. But. Um, you know, that in some sense, human society was a pretty fragile construct against a lot of, um, of forces that are far bigger than we are. And, and I think he's certainly right about that. You look at what's happening with climate change and certainly our civilization may not survive it. Well, I, was th- I was thinking even of um, with technology, you know, you were talking about Web 2.0, um, whatever point oh we're on right now, we can see, you know, we had this idea of of social networks were going to be this new, amazing, democratizing force, and we've seen that, you know, this these incredible advances in technology do create new problems. It's new chaotic problems that we we solve some, and that introduces new ones, and then we'll solve those, and that'll introduce other ones. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Frank talked about, and he's, yeah. he's very clear about that in a couple of his essays, like. The one science fiction in a world in crisis, uh, you know, is probably the clearest. But, but you know, Paul in Messiah says the only answer is disengage, disengage, disengage. Like, what do we do? Like, are we supposed to say, okay, well, let's stop advancing technology? Like, that's not going to happen. Or let's stop trying to solve climate change. Or, or you know, we have these problems. We need to to try and and work on them. Right? Like, there's still value in. Uh, in doing it, is it just not expecting that you will have control? That's right. I think that's right. You know, you do what you can. You know, again, I, the analogy that always comes to me is is of surfing. You know, yes, you're 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 you control your board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you control your response. You have this ability to, to to you know to ride the wave, but you don't think you can control the wave. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we're all a little bit like that in Frank's view, you know, and, and, and the thing that I think, you know, if he, if he had a, a message for us that I think is still very, very relevant today, it's that it's in a lot of ways, it's, it's, a, it's a very stoic message, which is the thing that you can control is your response uh, to what happens. You can't control what happens. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about um, you know his his work that he did relative to an, uh, analysis and uh, with the slatteries up up in Santa Rosa, like how that informed his understanding? I, you know, I think of Under Pressure as being you know the book that kind of reflects most of what he took from the slatteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, that sort of got the, a lot of psychoanalysis type thinking in it. I think by the time he got to Dune, he'd kind of moved on to something that was sort of beyond that. Got it. What about his take on religion and spirituality? You know, I think like a lot of people in that time period, Frank was uh, uh, kind of discovering, you know, people were, were, you know, there was this introspection that was beginning 
you know, when he wrote this in the early 60s, we were heading into the psychedelic era. But I remember Frank telling me about, uh, you know, him, his, some experiments he, he did with uh, uh, psychedelics down in Oaxaca. In Mexico, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so he was certainly curious and, and this sense of, of possibility was there. But I, I, again, I keep coming back to this, this sense of him, uh, and I, I think of myself the same way. He's not like a, a, a disciplined thinker who's sort of got everything in, in its, its, its careful little box. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, actually, this, this, this uh, reality keeps running away from me, and I notice this about it, and I notice that about it, and I notice that about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of recreate in my stories all this complexity of possibilities and ideas. and. I think part of what makes him powerful as a storyteller was that he didn't have a simple reductionist narrative. I mean, if you compare him to some of his, you know, uh, contemporaries, you know, it's a much more sprawling story. You know, like you think about somebody like A.E. Van Vogt, you know, it's like in the, you know, the world of Null A, you know, which was sort of, uh, or, or some of Heinlein's uh, stories about people getting, you know, telepathic or, or other powers, you know, they're all very, very, you know, it's like they're very simplistic mm. uh, Superman narratives. Mm. Yeah, they're like moralistic stories. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, whereas Frank's just like, man, you know, there's all this amazing shit and it's so cool. And it's also like, wow, what about this? What about that? It's, it's going to be so fucked up, you know, if we get that. <laughs> you know? I, think that's, I think that's why he's such an important author in the history yeah. of science fiction, because yeah. he was just willing to use the format of the story to explore these concepts like uh you know as like a discoverer word it was like what what happens like what happens if we run it forward if we allow evolution to take over and where do these people end up and yeah uh you see that you know i mean that's the birth of hard science fiction of like you know creating a world with rules and then like allowing the simulation to run what do you think he would have made of uh the rise of the internet like what do you, what was it what what was his like relationship to you know technology generally or technological change generally and and what do you think he would have made of um you know both the early internet that you, you you know the early internet and then like you know the birth of the web like what what do you think that would have been like for him well you know he actually wrote a book about the personal computer i don't know if you know that a nonfiction book i didn't know that yeah i didn't know and, that and it, it was not that good <laughs> i remember <laughs> okay. reading it uh uh, what was it called? You, and, you can do it, your taxes. It, you can no, it was, your it, was, it was more, actually the main tone of it was, uh, you know, you're the boss, you know, you tell it what to do, you know, it's like, don't, don't be afraid of it. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it was sort of, it was, um, maybe, uh, if you, if you were to tie it back to Dune, it would be, you know, you think about the Butlerian yeah. jihad. You know, the the, the uh, idea that humans rejected, you know, computers, thinking machines. Right. And I think he had a little bit of a, you know, like, hey, don't don't replace. Don't let these computers boss you around. Yeah, don't let these computers yeah. boss you around. <laughs> right. It's interesting though because that's in that that's in contrast to at least in in the film versions of. Uh, Philip K. Dick's work, right? Like the whole the whole concept of Blade Runner ultimately is that those thinking machines are just as human, just as valid, just as emotionally driven, um, and with just as much right to be alive. Yeah, the the ability to have empathy with other beings. Yeah, maybe more so than quote unquote humans. Um, so that becomes an interesting question. Like, 
To me, that feels like that is a potential evolution in crisis um, that we would have is for us to give birth to AI as the next form of, of human consciousness evolution. Yeah, and I think in, 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 I'm trying to remember which of, there was one of his later books um, where he, uh, well, Destination Void, he yeah. certainly played with played yeah. with that idea uh, much more explicitly. So, you know, he certainly grappled with all of that, but, you know, really the internet was still, you know, not even there. Proto. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't even proto at that point. So it, it's a little hard to know what he would have made of it, and it's a little bit like speculating what would... Uh, Yes, he was a science fiction writer, but uh, people who who thought about the future of technology back then, uh, you know, couldn't imagine it any more than we can imagine that future. It's all all told. It's 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 all told uh, in terms of the metaphors that we understand today. Mm. Do you do you draw any line from sort of your interest in this in this time period where you're thinking about Dune, talking to Frank, and the other things you're working on from that time period to like uh, the beginning of uh, your work on open source is there is there a through line from from any of the from any of that exploration to then you talked about the relationship uh, you know encouraging him to think about culture is remixing uh, you, know, you know that's me yeah. putting words in your mouth but essentially I'm just wondering no I, I think that's right I, I, well it, it, those those were that's a through line for me not a through line for Frank right gotcha yeah I always think of this this uh, this great line from Elizabeth Barrett Browning when she's you know it's one of her, her songs to the Portuguese where she says uh, what I do and dream include thee as the wine must taste of its own grapes and I think of all the books that I've read you know uh, what I do and dream include them as the wine mm-hmm. must taste of its own grapes mm-hmm. you know and, and certainly Frank uh, uh, you know is a part of my you know mimetic makeup yeah Mm -hmm. and along with a lot of other uh, a lot of other books yep that's great that's a beautiful quote one thing that really shocked the hell out of me and reading your book was the sheer number of books frank wrote concurrently (laughs) with doing these dune books like it's insane in in an era now where like our favorite authors of the 21st century can't finish their their series. They just they do three or four <laughs> right. and then they just stop. Right. Um, or it takes ten years to write one book. Frank was cranking them out every year and exploring it as you kind of lay out a lot of the same themes and doing it in different ways. So you could see him working things out. But that was just shocking to me that just the sheer output. Uh, that, you know, I guess I would just say that's uh, that's still true of a lot of authors. You look at someone like Kim Stanley Robinson, you know, yeah, cranks out for sure. you know, a book a year. Yeah, for sure. But but also I think, you know, Frank was, uh, you know, uh, he, he was at the tail end of the pulp era. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but those guys, you know, they would write three books a year, you know. Right. Uh, because basically you got paid by the word and uh, it wasn't a very good living, you know, unless you could really write fast. <laughs> right. I remember a, a description of Philip K. Dick, like fi- typing the last line of a, of a novel, pulling it out, setting it down, and putting the next piece of paper in and starting the next book. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> in, in my mind, I want to imagine those guys like hung out together in San Francisco or something. Like, did that ever happen? Yeah, you know, uh, 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 some of them, I, I, I do know that Frank uh, certainly had friends uh, who were science fiction writers. I don't think Philip K. Dick was one of them. Mm. Paul Anderson, I know, was a friend. Mm. I'm trying to remember, there were two or three people who he actually mentioned to me, and actually who I interviewed, 
uh, about Frank, uh, but I, I don't, I don't know that I have any, I, I maybe somewhere in, in some lost file, I have a, you know, again, this is all done on a typewriter or, or, you know, handwritten notes. Mm. I know, I know I, it was funny because, you know, this Dune came back up, uh, you know, and, and I, I went back and reread my book after 40 years. I was like, whoa, I did an interview with Albert Lord. You know, uh-huh. if you know who Albert Lord is, he was the guy who who uh, wrote the book The Singer of Tales about oral formulaic epic. Oh, right, mm. right, and, right. Uh, I had forgotten that I had I had called him up and talked to him about uh, you know epic poetry. How, how awesome was that? Like, <laughs> that's awesome. What what did Frank? What did he like to do for fun? Like, what was his like sort of rec- recreational time like? Uh, you know, he he was a pilot. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he, you know, he, he liked flying. Um, I think he, he, you know, he kind of had his experimental farm in, in Bellingham. Uh, I, I think he was interested in, in ideas and, you know, he liked people. And again, I, I didn't know him personally all that well. You know, I probably spent a total of five days with him. Yeah. <laughs> Was he someone who was he someone who liked to have people over a lot? Was that like you you were like one of the people like he was running his own version of food camp? Like he just have like a- no 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 no. When I it's just when I was doing that second book, you know, he invited me to come up and stay there, and I stayed with him and Bev, his wife, for uh, said mm-hmm. for for three or four days, and and uh, he was very you know they were very gracious, uh, you know. Um, what was it like? What was it like in the house? It was like a farmhouse, lots of books. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was definitely. It was. It was actually. A, a, um, yeah, it was a big house. He had this. Uh, he, again, as I said, he had this uh, gr- greenhouse with a swimming pool in it. Uh, you know, and it was. It was. Uh, he had this experimental farm. You know, it, it, again, it was. It, it, again, you think about think 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 whole earth catalog. Right. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of that vibe of you know, hey, we're we're you know we're figuring out new ways to live, mm. you know. So it was probably you know like if you went to Stuart Brand's uh, you know and Ryan Phelan's you know place in Petaluma today, you'd probably go, oh yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the the key enduring legacy um, of Frank and and of the series? Hmm, it's an interesting question. When I when I think uh, uh, about so many of the books that shaped me, the legacy is probably in the people whom it touched as much as it is in, you know, the book itself. Mm. You know, it's like somebody read it and took something from it. And yes, you know, maybe, you know, it influenced, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, we have Star Wars because of Dune, you know, mm-hmm. maybe we had... And then we had some other thing because of Star Wars, you know, and maybe we had, um, I guess I would just sort of say all of us are likely to be mostly forgotten. Mm. You know, this is, uh, uh, you know, very, you know, you, you think about cultural production in general. And uh, it, it's really funny because. You you think uh, like like just take I've often think about the same with classical music, you know, and you kind of think uh, uh, of most people's idea of classical music, uh, you know, and they have Bach, and they've then they've got you know maybe you know Haydn, and then maybe they've got Mozart, and then they have Beethoven, and and you, then you transpose that to the twentieth century, and you go oh okay, we got. Yeah, you know, the only musicians who exist are 
um, Tommy Dorsey, and then Elvis Presley, and then the, the Beatles, Beatles, yeah, and then Nirvana, and then you know, uh, you know, what you know, it's just like you know, it's like one person from every ten years, right, you know, or every twenty years, right. You know, and so then you think about in the in that immediate moment, you know, when you are full of all these books. I think of the you know thousands of books I've read, you know, thousands, literally thousands of science fiction books, and they're all in this big, you know, uh, you know, part of my you know mimetic DNA, so to speak. And, and nobody else is ever going to have that same stew because, you know, all of that stuff is now kind of like. History. I remember once I had gone through my books and I had a bunch of duplicates, and they were, you know, they to me they were like they were fantastic old books. And I took them into this used bookstore, and this woman's just like breaking the spines, you know, like no, I can't take this one because you know, I just you just broke it, you know, because <laughs> it's fragile, you know, and it's like it's not valuable anymore. It's just like, mm. and, and that's very Frank Herbert, quite honestly, you know, it's like yeah, you know, it's like it all gets swept away, mm. you know. Paul yeah. walks off into the desert. Yeah. Although his water then later gets to sit next to his son for all eternity or whatever. Right? <laughs> like they make, you know, so he, he gets to come back in, in, in jug form. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I tried explaining that to my two-year-old son, but he doesn't get it. I'm like, look, there's going to be a jar. You just got to sit <laughs> right. next to me. It'll be fine. Sit, yeah, it'll be great. You get to sit next to my jug. <laughs> this is great. What a great, what a great, uh, a gift to be able to hear your perspective. Are you? Are will you see the new movie? Will you see uh, the Villeneuve movie? Oh, absolutely, a a absolutely. I I'm really looking forward to it. So, have you seen? Have you seen any of his other films? So, whether it's Arrival or Blade Runner twenty forty nine or Sicario, I, I saw uh, Arrival, which I like quite a lot. Great, right? Uh, I, I yeah. I, I and of course. It's a little different from the book, uh, from the story, Ted Chiang's story, mm -hmm. but it's uh, mm -hmm. it's both are wonderful, and uh, uh, that actually gives me kind of some hope for Dune because here's a book that, or a story, I should say, I keep wanting to call it a book, but it's only, only a short story uh, that also deals very creatively and thoughtfully with the problems of of seeing the future. Mm, yeah, and uh, that that I th uh, is good. Uh, Sicario, I thought was very good. Uh, I don't think I, I did not see Blade Runner twenty forty nine, so mm. don't know about that. We're big fans of it on this podcast. Yeah, I I, I should definitely definitely watch it. I, I have to say, I, I was so scarred by the the David Lynch version of Dune that uh, <laughs> yeah, it's I, not a great movie. Yeah, I I have low expectations. So that you know, all I I. I you know, I mainly remember about it is my my utter uh, horror and disgust to discover that they had they had turned no no that they had turned the Bene Gesserit weirding way into a gun. Right. Right. Yeah, that's pretty wild. <laughs> I mean, that was like, oh my god, how like how much can you just either miss the point or not care? Yeah, I think like the the it's interesting, and we talk about this with our guests a lot who have experience with the books and the movies. Like for for myself, like I saw the movie before I read the book, and so the movie was just like this totally weird thing I saw as a kid, and I was like, "This is fantastic!" And so yeah. it holds like this soft spot in my heart for that. Oh, got it. Okay, got it. Going to revisit the movie when we watched it to do this podcast, and I watched it with my wife, and she had never seen it before, <laughs> and she she was just like. 
this is not a good movie. Like, like you have to admit that this is a bad. She's movie. Like, I was like, she's like, Jason. I think you need to reevaluate your life choices. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, she's like, you're you're doing a whole podcast because of this <laughs> terrible movie. I was like, well, not just the movie, but yes, um, yeah. It's 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 clearly it's clearly a flawed film. Uh, but I mean, I think the biggest strength, and we've talked about this too, is that like Villeneuve's movie is going to be two movies. Like the first the first movie is only the first half of the first book. Um, which gives him some space. Yeah, and I, I think that's right because it is a, a big story and one that, you know, should be told with some time. Yeah. Like our expectations for this film are only like five star plus, uh, like perfect, perfect film for, for Jason and I. What gives me hope is in the way that Frank puts so much effort into so much detail to have everything seem effortlessly real and effortlessly yeah. grounded and it all makes sense. That's what Denny does. Like all of his films feel so you know, like just lived in and real world. Yeah. And always driven around a heart of a strong emotional core and the characters dealing with sadness, power, um, stress, fear, um, and commitment to family. Um, so I think all of those things play to the strength between that and the source material. Um, I am not worried at all about Denny going the wrong way or not knowing how to make a $200 million film. Like he knows how to work within these constraints and is going to do very well. Yeah. You know what you were saying earlier about Tom Bombadil being cut out of mm. um, fellowship, uh, 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 fellowship of the ring makes me think about, uh, you know, how much material there is that will probably not make it into uh, this story. Yeah. You know, that could almost be like a set of short outtakes. Not, not out, you know, outtakes, but literally works, uh, you know, short stories. Like when I think of, of moments that really, um, you know, st stuck with me, you know, from, from those books, you know, that just utterly shaped how I think. Mm. And and I'll be I'll be curious to see if they make it into the movie. Speak. What what are some of those? What 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 comes to mind? Uh, you know, uh, one was that that you know when Paul is uh you know they're still it's before they they fled out into the desert and he's at the dinner party. Yes. And he yeah. and he starts telling them the story about uh, about the drowning sailors. Yeah. And, and they're kind of like people like why are you telling this? And he he ends with well because I've never I, you know I've never seen it happen at a dinner party you know where all these people are like right. climbing all over each other to you know kind of you know survive or get, get and you know that scene it, it, the vividness of 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 people trying to curry favor and and fighting each other and killing each other for you know for you know and they're not going to survive anyway. It's just very vivid scene. Also, the establishment of of Jessica and Paul's skill and power of subtle um, reading people and subtle yeah. observations. Oh yeah, she's yeah. like, oh, she's like, oh, I can tell from his accent that's a Harkonnen spy. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and that, that 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 whole thing was always magical in in science fiction. You know that that mm. sense of of you know that 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 we have these powers in in us. But the other thing that that really really stuck with me out of Dune. When uh, uh, there's a, a sand crawler um, stuck down on, on, on the sand, and, and, and they're they're flying, and Leto goes down to rescue. Yep. You know the man. This is Leto, the father, not mm -hmm, Leto, mm -hmm. the, the son. Um, and, and there's a comment about that's why you know 
uh, you know, people will follow him because he, he will give his life for them. And it was that sense Mm -hmm. of, of the mutuality of leadership. Mm. And, and that really stuck with me, you know, and, and, and there were actually other books that I had read, uh, particularly as a, as a historical novel called The Golden Warrior about Harold, the last of the Saxon kings, that impressed the same idea on me that, you know, a big part of leadership is, is, is showing up for the people you lead, you know, and that, that you have a responsibility to them, you know, like in the deal is they follow you where you, you lead them and you are going to make it good for them. I love that. It is interesting though, to, but to your point, you called this out in your book. Um, you say, you gain insights into the moral base upon which Paul makes his own decisions. All of this is couched in a form which makes Paul and his people admirable. I am their advocate, but don't lose sight of the fact that House Atreides acts with the same arrogance towards, quote, the common folk as do their enemies. I am showing you the superhero syndrome and your own participation in it. Yeah, I love that. The arrogant are in part created by the meek. Yeah, uh, I, well, Frank was really uh, good on this, and I think you know he he you know you know there's been some great writing uh, uh, you know about this as uh, you know I mean there's people who are you know claiming well it's just the colonialist myth all over again it's also it's a critique of the colonialist myth and mm-hmm. I think uh, Frank did appreciate. That uh, you know, yeah. I'm sh- again. I we never talked about. He must have read Kipling, you know. Mm, <laughs> of course, my my favorite scene that I I am sure my favorite sort of part of the story of Dune that I'm sure is not going to make it into the movie. I'm not sure, but I would doubt he's going to make it into the movie. Is the whole Count Fenrig, mm. Lady Fenrig story of like the Count as like this master assassin who's like the best friend with the Emperor, who's like a one kind of gene away from being the Quetzal's Hadarach himself, but he ended up a eunuch and he could kill Paul at the end, but he doesn't. And like, it's this very interesting subplot that like is like, you know, to your point, like that he's just playing with some ideas of like what other possibilities existed in this world. And it's like, it's kind of like a Tom Bombadil plot where it's, you know, it's not necessary to the main story, but it's what makes it so much more rich and interesting. Well, I'm just going to go on record and say I think Fenring will definitely be in it. I, I think it's great that they're splitting the movie into two, the book into two movies. But I think the second half is going to need a lot of action and and story development, new villains, and yeah, yeah, because there's not as much stuff that happens. So I mean, yeah. again, I can picture you know movie two opening with the gladiator scene with Fade and Fenring, yeah, and Fenring and all that, like having having that as that introduction for those characters, and I bet we will see them. Yeah, because fade's not fade's not in the first movie, so uh, it, it's going to be interesting. I I hope they don't go the route of uh, Lord of the Rings, where I felt the first movie was really good, and then the second and the third, it was like, oh my god, you know, why do you have endless endless battle scenes that are just you know endless CG? Yeah, mm. uh, that was just terrible. I, and then when they did the director's cut, they made it longer with more of the bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When yeah. you go to the director's cut, we could have gotten rid of all that stuff and made <laughs> made it a tidy movie. Yeah, I'm with it for the first three, like for for Fellowship, especially the theatrical uh, releases. I'm all in. It's just the Hobbit where I thought the the wheels came completely off the train. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But there's so many ways you can go wrong. And I, I, I do think that uh, for me, the biggest one is do you capture the spirit? And I, I, I thought about that a little bit with um, it, like the, the Captain America movies, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, where they in the movies, they make him, 
you know, much more powerful than he was in the original comic books. Right. But they they captured the spirit of, you know, like Steve Rogers was this skinny little kid who wanted to go to war. Perfectly. You know, uh, and, and, you know, wasn't able to. And then he gets, you know, gets that classic, you know, it's that same myth, you know, you know, straight out of Joseph Campbell about, you know, you, you get tapped and you have this destiny, you know, and, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, they just did a beautiful job of making it real, you know, versus, uh, the, the, uh, Brad Bird, uh, John Carter of Mars. Mm. Right. Right. You know, where I go, oh my God, you know, John Carter was this Virginia gentleman, you know, you know, civil war, you know, era character who, uh, you know, was, was, uh, kind of this throwback and then they make him this cynic, you know, and you go, wait, you mm-hmm. just violated the character. You know, you didn't, right. you, you know, you can update the character. You can bring the character forward. You can make them more of what they were, but you can't make them different or less when you have a beloved character. Yep. Well, Jason, you had, you had asked whether or not they will do, whether Denny will do more signposting of where things are going to go uh, relative to Paul. Yeah, like specifically, like I think I think one of the interesting things is the extent to which Denny, who's like a very loyal book reader, attempts to kind of signal the downfall of Paul more in this movie. If if not in the first movie, then you know, by the end of the second movie, in terms of like the being tormented by visions of jihad and by, you know, planets burning and stuff like that, and how much he kind of sets that up. I hope he doesn't, because it really if he were true to the series, he would really it would be this, you know, triumphant story all the way through because it's really not until the second book that it turns. Right. But you you do have Paul, you do have Paul in the CH with Jessica, even before she drinks the water of life, going like, oh shit, if like it's already too late. Like I could die and the jihad is gonna happen. The wild jihad is gonna happen no matter what I do. Only if literally every single person in the CH was killed, maybe the jihad could be pre- could be prevented. So yeah, no, that's fair. I think there that's is fair. some some forecasting. And I think you could do these like really cool shots of Paul imagining what the jihad is gonna look like, and you can see Fremen running across the galaxy. And that could be that motivating factor for him to be like, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna stop all that. It's gonna be okay. I think yeah, I think they could still pull the rug out from under you and just kind of you know stuff that you would notice in retrospect. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the whole interest, you know, kind of comes back to that fundamentally interesting idea in Frank's work that uh, the apple cart does need to get upset from time to time mm-hmm. and that it will, it will get upset and that somehow we will survive that. Yep. You know, you, you had this great quote from Joseph Campbell in the book, um, schism in the soul, schism in the body social will not be resolved by any scheme of return to the good old days, archaism or by program guaranteed to render an ideal projected future futurism or even by the most realistic, hard-headed work to weld together the deteriorating elements. Only birth can conquer death. The birth, Mm. not of the old thing again, but of something new. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Joseph Campbell in the house. (laughs) Joseph Campbell was was really amazing. I I, I only saw him in, in person once, and he gave a lecture. He was in his 80s, and he came. He was a very graceful man, and... uh he he told the story of of Alan Watts saying, "What kind of yoga do you do, Joe?" <laughs> and and uh, Joe Joe 
he said, I looked at him and I said, I underline passages. (laughs) 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 I always remember that sweet moment. That's amazing. All right. So I will ask you one question. We have a recurring segment that we do. (laughs) If you uh, had to cast one character in the new Dune movie with Tilda Swinton, what role would you like to see her play? Ooh, Mm. boy. Uh, Yeah, I guess I would say whatever role she wants. (laughs) That's a a great (laughs) answer. answer. It's a perfect answer. I would like to see Dune as a one-woman show uh, with yeah. Tilda Swinton. She plays all of the parts. Yeah, I, I kind of go, yeah, Tilda Swinton can do anything. So you know, just say, hey, okay, look, we got the show. What do you want to do? That's amazing. I Yeah. Great the, answer. The one-woman production, I think, is is phenomenal. What a great idea. What <laughs> if, if, if O'Reilly published the Tilda Swinton biography, what would her cover animal be? Hmm. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that she'd have an animal. <laughs> okay. It's just her. <laughs> It's, it's just her. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to letters. So we receive letters and we are thankful for everyone. We get letters and voicemail and we just have a couple here briefly, um, which I'm going to read. Our first letter is from our a first-time letter writer, Dan Horgan. And he says... Hey guys, this is Dan writing to you from Boston. I've just found the pod about two weeks ago, but I've already listened to most of your catalog. I found the pod while searching for a discussion on Euphoria, which I had just finished, and coincidentally was also in the final chapters of my first Dune read-through. Both were dense works I was eager to hear discussed, so I was delighted to find your pod. Some of my thoughts on Euphoria. I absolutely love the show, probably my favorite series in recent memory. The shared ensemble perspectives really created a sense of a larger world and the different paths characters take to navigate a semi-shared reality. I found your generational commentary particularly interesting as a just barely Gen Zer. High school certainly did not look like this for me, but I do think the hyper-reality of the series does reflect the severity of the experience while you're in it. Mm. Woo! <laughs> Certainly some parallels with the Dune world. How much does Paul control his own circumstances? As you said, Herbert clearly was interested in a critique of reliance on stability and systems or messiahs, but it is interesting to think that despite all of Paul's power, he is still navigating a relatively minute slice of the universe and history, both established for him by circumstances and people he has no power over. Even with literal prescience, he is constrained to a past already written and a future already foreseen. It's also an inversion to think of criticism of a messiah as difficult in a protagonist-driven narrative. I think Dune succeeds in challenging that narrative by having Arrakis be, in a way, the most central character throughout the series, it is the name, with a wide cast passing through it. While dense and sometimes placed less than perfectly for my taste, Dune's greatest success is in its world building and the space it leaves for imagination. Messiah and children leave similar room, though I think suffer from less exposition and the Star Wars effect where all the important powerful characters are related and connected beyond death. That's a really great point as it, the story sort of collapses from, um, you know, this whole, all these different forces to just Paul and, and the family as you get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets, it gets real small. Thank you, Dan. That is a- Yeah, that was a great letter. That was a thorough essay. <laughs> that is a whole letter. <laughs> That's a, that a real good letter. Tim, your thought on Arrakis as the true hero of the Dune saga? Well, uh, again, you know, Frank wrote 
many layers of the onion. And it's certainly true that that is a very true statement along with many other true statements. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, was, it, 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 it was a book that was you know, ultimately about terraforming and about uh, you know, that process of, of how, you know, how you know, the, that original image that he had of, of try, you know, from sand the dunes. research project on, on, on trying to uh, restrict sand dunes and, and, and how you did it with natural means gradually over time uh, and not with, uh, you know, with, with walls, uh, I think, you know, kind of, you know, there's a lot of metaphors throughout the book for that. I guess I would just say yes. And there's so much more. Mm. Mm. That's great. I like it. That is a great point that that was the original motivation was literally that. Yeah. But uh, you know, there's this, there's that ecological theme, but then the spice and the prescience are a whole other, uh, you know, an entirely different layer. That is right. Okay, uh, and we have one voicemail. Uh, here we go. Doom Pod. Hello, it's Corey from Austin, Texas. I hope you all weren't worried that I wasn't going to call on the season two finale. Happy season two finale. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, the Drive episode really, really made me want to revisit uh, Drive. And also reference other films, uh, Bronson, Mahalo Rising, Only God Forgives. I love all of those. Um, and if you guys haven't seen them, really get on them. They're a lot of fun and challenging, but still really, really entertaining. Um, and I'm honestly shocked that neither of y'all cast Tilda as the driver. I mean, mm. we all love Gotham, but Tom. Tilda as a werewolf? Maybe that's what we really need <laughs> is a legitimate Tilda werewolf movie. Okay. Somebody call Hollywood and let's get on that. Um, and uh, I'm stoked that Tim O'Reilly's on this June pod. Welcome. Thank you. I'm sure that uh, Jason has been handling you with questions, uh, but I have a couple. Um, one, what is your favorite book in the Dune series? This may be kind of a lame question, but I am honestly curious. I haven't read your uh, your book yet, but I'm stoked to see that it's online. So one, what is your favorite Dune book in the series? And then the other question I would have would be, if you had to recommend a Herbert book outside of Dune and and its uh, sequels, which would it be? All right. Well, thanks for another stellar season, you guys. Um, early congrats to Jason and your wife on your second child. Enjoy your paternity leave. H, keep it together while you and Jason are apart, not <laughs> recording Dune Pod. I'll try to keep it together by not having new episodes. <clears throat> But I'm really looking forward to the Excalibur episode in 2021. It's going to be a great year, you guys. And effing, I almost swore. And Dune will be released. I'm going to swear. Fucking Dune's coming out. All right. Bye, y'all. <laughs> Corey, we love you. Thank you, Corey. What a legend. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. As always, showing how it's done. Okay, so, Tim, your favorite Dune book from the series? Dune Messiah. Really? Wow! Whoa! Strong yeah. choice. Yeah. Yeah. It was the it was the one that I mean I, I have to say obviously I loved Dune when I first read it, uh, but Dune Messiah is the one that stuck most deeply in my psyche. Uh, That's amazing. Uh, the second question: uh, What other book would I recommend? Uh, by far, the Santa Rosa Barrier. Really? It's great. Yeah. It's really good. It's it uh, you know again I loved Under Pressure I mean when I think of of Frank's work 
to me, he wrote four really, really good books. And that was Under Pressure, Dune, Dune Messiah, and The Santa Rosa Barrier. Mm. And it's interesting. In a way, Dune Messiah and The Santa Rosa Barrier almost seem like two versions of the same book mm. to me. Interesting. Like he was he was telling the same story. Because it's such an inward facing, it's such like a, there's such like an inward journey in both of them. Uh, there's something, uh, yeah, I guess it would be the, the, the inward journey, but it, it's really, they're, they're, he's coming to grips with, uh, you know, the, 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 this sort of fundamental failure uh, in both of them. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. You know, and is uh, is one part of it. But, uh, and again, I, I, it's a long time since I've read The Santa Rosa Barrier. So, it, it, uh, and I didn't actually reread the chapter where <laughs> in my own book where I, <laughs> I was sort of skimming skimming through to read the, the Dune stuff for this. So, I didn't refresh myself on it. It does make me want to read it again. That was a big chapter. The, the Santa Rosa chapter was bigger than, than Children of Dune. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't like Children of Dune that much, and I, I thought the Santa Rosa Barrier was a was a fairly profound uh, book, hmm. uh, and, and it had a lot to say uh, that I, that I I, I I I wish more people read it. Yeah, how about God Emperor of Dune? <laughs> uh, again, all the later ones I I found forgettable. Yeah, that's fair. And the 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 other, the other book I I thought the the things that stuck with me. From other parts of, of Herbert's work, uh, I, I thought the the Bureau of Sabotage was a fantastic construct. This idea of um, that uh, you know that everybody talks about how how government you know inefficiency is is sort of this you know with you know everybody makes fun of it, and this idea that no no you know Frank said you know imagine a truly efficient government. You know, and, and of course, I've spent a lot of, of my career kind of actually arguing for government to be more efficient and effective. But at the same time, I recognize, uh, you know, Frank's point that uh, in, in some ways, um, uh, slowing down the machine is maybe sometimes a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your, your book, Frank Herbert, this is the first book that I've read as opposed to listened to on an audiobook in probably five years. Um, mm. so it was, I usually am listening while running or doing the dishes or whatnot. Um, I'm just curious. I recently backed Cory Doctorow's, um, Kickstarter where he's releasing his latest book, Attack Surface off of, instead of doing it on Audible, which requires DRM and requires exclusivity, he's, he's distributing it himself. Yeah. And I'm just curious your take on sort of the, the current state and the future of publishing, um, and kind of where where things are going on that on that front, and and your take on the democratization of, of publishing. You know, uh, I guess I would say first off, um, in terms of formats, uh, it's wonderful to be able to consume media in many many different ways. And you know, there's certain uh, books that I know I would never have read, but that I have loved listening to, and and mm. and uh, this other. You know, some t- books I've read, half of them, uh, you know, on a, on a, on my phone, and half of them in paper. You know, <laughs> and uh, you know, going back and forth depending on what's more convenient. Mm. I uh, so that that part, I would just say, yes, it's it's kind of wonderful to the the, the flexibility that we have today. At the same time, I, I I've actually been reading old fashioned paper books a lot more lately. Mm. In the last, mm. I don't know, couple of years, I've just I, I've really tried to. 
actually get away from some of the other constant media because it feels to me as though you know with 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 phones and screens you know we're always filling our minds with input and 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 uh, not giving space and there's something very special about setting aside a particular kind of time and space with with a printed book mm. Although I, lately I've been reading a, a bunch of books that where I actually have to read the book uh, with a phone by my side because uh, I'm, I'm reading this guy, Patrick Lee Furmore, who's a, a, a fantastic travel writer who wrote, uh, you know, basically from the, you know, uh, 50s through, you know, up, this last book was published in 2011 and he died in his mid-90s. But huh? uh, he, this guy was unbelievably literate. So... Uh, you know, every couple of pages I'm looking, or, you know, it's just, just the, 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 it, he, he's kind of like the last of the truly literate, historically deep writers in, you know, kind of in the old, you know, old school, uh, you know, so he'll just casually toss off some comment, you know, like he tells a story in his book, Mani, which is written in the mid fifties. He, 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 he was a guy who he, he, uh, in 1934, he, he, uh, he dropped out of school and uh, tried the bohemian life. Didn't really work for him. So he decided to walk from uh, England to Constantinople. And he took a year to do it. Whoa. And uh, he, he actually wrote the story of this uh, 40 years later. I've heard. What, what is it called? I've heard of this book. Uh, uh, well, the, 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 the book, the, the, the first book is a trilogy. The first one is called The Time of Gifts. Okay. The second one is Between the Woods and the Water, and the third one is uh, called The Broken Road, which was published posthumously. Hmm. So they were written 40, 55, and 70 years after the event. <laughs> wow. Mm. Um, uh, of that year. Mm. Yeah, you know, but he, he throws off things about some author, you know, or some classical illusion, and I'm always looking them up. And it's, it's sort of actually, it's a wonderful multimedia experience because I'm reading this, you know, old book. See here, uh, you know, uh, and uh, where is it? Somewhere down here behind me. Uh, yeah, I'm reading this old book. Uh, can you guys, my, my video is frozen. I don't know if you can see I it. I can't see it, but, but no, we can't see it. I'm but still picking it up from a multimedia great. perspective. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, uh, you know, and at the same time, then I may, or he's talking about some artist, you know, who's. You know Byzantine, you know Byzantine artist who's painted you know murals in Mistra, you know, which is near Sparta, and I go, holy shit, I didn't even know that, that you know that this existed, and uh, you know, and, and he makes reference to some book, and I can order it immediately. I can find it on a Libris. I mean, this is like a magnificent. This is the power, the power of technology, the power of the internet. Yeah, power of consumption, and, and so I guess <laughs> I think I, I, I think about it from that point of view. But back to your thing about production and what Corey's done. I love, you know, the way Corey has, I mean, he, he lives out his beliefs on that mm -hmm. in a wonderful way. Yeah, I respect the hell out of it. I, I do want to say I am looking forward to the the books that Jason is going to write 70 years from now <laughs> about his time <laughs> on DudePod. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And that's it for season two of Dune Pod. Wow. What a good time. I want to thank Jason and Tim for such a thoughtful conversation. Now we begin our hiatus as we walk into the desert, seeking knowledge and meaning to bring back to the tribe. Actually, Jason's just having a baby. 
We'll return in January with a whole slate of new and returning guests as we discuss the miniseries, the movies, the books, Hey Proto, God Emperor's on deck, and even the games. If you're enjoying this podcast, follow us at DunePod on Instagram and Twitter and share our social media posts as it really helps new listeners find the show. DunePod is a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. The episode was produced and edited by me, H. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next year. 